You're listening to the Jim Bradford Podcast, conversations on faith, life, and leadership. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. We're continuing our conversations through the Bible with today's discussion on the book of Obadiah. Recently, we've been discussing the minor prophets and recognizing their similar themes, but also the frequent quotation of these prophets in the New Testament. Obadiah is a short book, but it is significant enough to have been passed down for generations of Jews and Christians and included in our Bible. So today, Pastor Jim explores the book's historical setting and what it can still mean for believers today. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Pastor Jim, I'm grateful for another opportunity to be together and be talking about God's Word through the books of the Bible, our series we've been in. We find ourselves working through the minor prophets, and uh, uh, there's quite a few of them, but it's been interesting as we work through them, some of the similarities, some of the themes, and we're making our way there. So we are not too far from uh, the end of the Old Testament. It's been a a fun project to, to go through with you. I really enjoyed it. Um, we love, we both love God's Word. Always amazed at uh, at what comes out of it, uh, whether we're preaching week to week or just sitting. Especially, I find just sitting, talking back and forth about Scripture. It always amazes me what kind of surfaces, what the Holy Spirit helps us uh, focus on. And uh, we always trust the Holy Spirit to be our teacher in this. But the text of Scripture is something we never want to take for granted. Yeah, and I always have a sense that it is alive and active, isn't it? So it does work in us. I definitely get that sense as we spend time in it together. We're coming to one of those books. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. Uh, It's not even a prophecy against Judah or Israel. And so sometimes you can kind of minimize these kinds of books or texts. But it's, again, just powerfully rich uh, and insightful stuff for us in our spiritual formation. Yeah, I don't I have not preached through Obadiah. Um I've not preached through the minor prophets, but what I have found over and over, particularly in the New Testament, is how often the language of these minor prophets or the images of these minor prophets prophets emerge. Uh we talked of course about the way Joel appears, but even as we get into some of these other minor prophets, certainly the writers of the New Testament, certainly Jesus himself had immersed himself in the language yes. and the words and the stories of these prophets, and yeah. they can't help but sort of draw from them. These themes are showing up all across the New Testament as well. And so, yeah, while it is easy to sort of look at a book like Obadiah and think, well, it's less than two pages, less than a spread in my Bible, a 30-minute conversation, I sort of joked earlier, we could just read it and be done. <laughs> you know, It would take less than 30 less than minutes 30 to read minutes, it. Yeah. yeah, maybe that'd be better. Uh, but yet these themes and what's, what's occurring in these are significant enough that generations of believers, Jewish and Christian, have been holding on to them and reading them and picking up the language from them. And Obadiah is certainly one of those as well. Exactly. Yeah. Obadiah um, is a prophecy uh, were written, we're not totally sure when, likely shortly after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. There was a conflict with the Philistines and, and other Arabian peoples um, a little earlier where Jerusalem had been threatened, but uh, likely it, it refers to the fall of Babylon. And he is a uh, fall by Babylon of, of Judah. And it's 
it's it's a short book all about pride and it's it, it's it's Obadiah being the voice of God to the Edomites. Now the Edomites, remember Jacob and Esau were twins and uh and of course it was through Jacob then his 12 sons the 12 tribes of Israel and through Esau came the Edomites. And by this point, you know, for a thousand years, these had been uh, cousins with a really conflicted relationship, the cousin nations of Israel and the Edomites. Um, the Edomites had settled in, in, in an area like today would be southern Jordan. It would be you go to the bottom of the Dead Sea, keep going south and t- kind of to the west. If you've ever been to Petra, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, um, that's where the Edomites lived, that area. And the geographical descriptions at the beginning of Obadiah are precise to that. You you dwell in the clefts of the rocks, and the, and, and and the eagles make their 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 nests in the heights, and and all of these geographic descriptions right at the beginning of uh, of Obadiah are identical to what you would see if if you've been to I've been to Petra several times um it's a massive tourist site now but it and in fact I have with a mutual friend of ours Dr. Wave Nunley I've hiked to the top uh way above ancient Petra to kind of the top of the clefts the heights there and looked at over all the rugged jagged mountainous territory and and we read right out of Obadiah, and it puts you right there. This is where Edom is settled. Later, the Nabataeans would push the Edomites, um, would push them west uh, out towards uh, this, you know, underneath, south of the area of Israel. And it became, they became known as the Edomedian, Edomians. And Herod, uh, the great of the Christmas story, was actually an Edomian. And then later the Romans decimated them. There's not really a people group related to them anymore. And this is what this is what Obadiah is going to say, uh, for reasons we'll get into. He says, uh, Jerusalem's going to last, but you're not. That's it. And so we're living in a in the reality of something that was fulfilled long, long ago. Yeah, it helps and, you understand a little bit of the tensions with like Herod the Great as well, too, because exactly. he's the Hasmonean kingdom, so that the Maccabean revolt will forcefully convert Edom yeah. to become Jewish, so yeah. circumcised and participants basically through military conquest. And so Herod is Jewish, but he's also from Edomite or right. Edom. So exactly. you understand sort of the complexity, the questions of his legitimacy to be king of the Jews. Right. Exactly. That's all amazing connections here and amazing prejudices that continue from generation to generation. Yeah, my understanding for a little bit of the setting is, as you alluded to, probably that when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and conquered Judea, uh, the Edomites had sided with the Babylonians and participated in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so it is Obadiah speaks this word about this decision on Edom's part. because. 
particularly although there there's hostilities between Edom and and Judah uh they are more related as you said than certainly the Babylonians so their decision to side with Babylon is really to turn even on some ancestral history that they shared with with the Hebrew people yeah that's exactly right that's the why behind the what the what is that Jerusalem will be restored but uh you won't uh why because they sided with them and um it's interesting in, in most of the minor prophets uh, you know, the people of God are being judged for idolatry, sexual immorality, and social injustice. However, uh, those aren't the three that are mentioned here. Instead, they're judged for an attitude, and that attitude was pride. That attitude was pride. And pride's hard to quantify. Am I pri- proud or not? I mean, you know, um, I'm humble and proud of it, right? It's hard It's hard to tell if you're proud. But the, one of the valuable parts pastorally to me of Obadiah is that in God saying your pride has become your downfall, he behavioralizes three aspects of pride and how they affected their response to the Babylonian conquest of Israel. Um, in in, in quantifying behaviorally what pride looks like, um, it really gives us a handle on how to handle that monster in, in our lives. But, you, you know, he, uh, we could just read the third verse, though, to start us out. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights, that's, that's like the area where Petra is today, which was later built. You, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Who can bring me down? And, of course, that whole area where Petra is now was considered, you know, hugely defensible. You, you are almost invincible. It was very hard for invading armies to navigate that kind of terrain and, and get into you. So so you're saying, who could ever bring me down to the ground? God's going to say, I'm going to bring you down to the ground. Um, but, but your pride has deceived you, you who sit in the heights. And uh, then, th- then he's, he he gives he identifies three behaviors th- that came out of her pride. And first of all, they just refuse to get involved when their cousins, the people of God, the G- people in Judah were were under threat. They stayed aloof. He said, "On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem." You were like one of them. And so you were watching this happen in Jerusalem, and you decided to stay uninvolved. You just stood aloof. You thought you were safe, and uh, you could care less what happened to them. That's an interesting behavioral trait of pride, just that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to dirty my hands. I'm not going to get involved. Um, you know, I'm just going to stay aloof, step aside. So it's an interesting thing that they... They first of all started there. You were watching what was happening, and you say, "I'm not going to get involved," and and that's uh, that's a sinful thing for us when we, you know, sometimes it's clear we shouldn't. Sometimes to get involved just messes things up more. I'm dealing with an issue right now with another spiritual leader. Actually, not sure how involved to get. I've tried reaching out. I've tried, but I feel helpless in the situation right now to know how to help. And yet it's tempting to dive in and get in the middle of the controversies that are whirling around right now. And 
I, I don't want. So, so, you know, I think there's time to discern the getting involved. I've had times where there's been issues in the church and, and the Lord said to me, you know, if you touch it, it'll just make it worse. Just keep your hands off it. Yeah. So there are, and, but you always have to make sure that that's not coming out of the wrong spirit. Because yeah, you can get this pride in two places, this pride that sort of always imagines yourself at the middle of every controversy. I have to respond to everything. everything. I, have yeah. to, I have to speak on every issue because right. my opinions need to be exactly. heard. But there can be an opposite kind of pride, a kind of pride that looks like cowardice sometimes, yeah. that just would rather not get involved, that would rather just stay clean, that would rather just, you know, if I can keep my, if I can protect myself yeah. and not, then hey, all the better. Yeah. Right. And our insecurities often do that to us. I think our insecurities make us pretty self-protective. We make decisions just to sort of medicate our insecurities. Sometimes just our old selfishness, but all it all ultimately comes to that root of pride, like I'm the center of everything, and I don't want anything to threaten me. And so it makes us stand aloof. We just need to listen to the Holy Spirit, you know, how involved to get in, in certain things. Definitely, as a pastor, I have to throw my whole heart into that calling. Whatever your calling is, you got to throw your heart into it. But there may be issues that you have to stand aloof to, but you do it not out of that. You have to have the, your insecurities taken care of, your, your pride crucified, so that when you do decide to just not get involved in something and potentially make it worse, you're doing it out of the right heart. Yeah. What are some of the other signs you see here of, of pride and the way that it manifests itself? Uh, well, you said the next thing you did was you gloated over their loss. You know, that's a tough one. I always think of that that German word, schadenfreude, the idea yeah. of taking joy at someone else's fall. Uh, and there's the sort of uh, small version of it, right? So everybody likes watching fail videos online. You know, you watch somebody <laughs> somebody skateboarding and they crash down the stairs. And you, these are always the things that go viral, right? So somebody's embarrassing mistake. But then there's this larger sort of when somebody you're against has an embarrassing gaffe or makes some terrible mistake, the kind of that sense of joy or pleasure that you actually feel from it. This is that idea of schadenfreude. We actually, schadenfreude. We actually take joy in watching oh. somebody else's fall. And I think there's definitely some of that going on here. And this is back to that point of pride again too, right? Exactly. Seeing, seeing somebody that we are competitive with's failure yeah. has a kind of perverse way of making us think we're better than them. When their failure may have nothing to do with a comparison to us, still their their defeat can feel like our success. I think there's certainly exactly. something going on here with that. Exactly. I do know people, as you do as well, I mean, they can't feel good about themselves unless they feel better than somebody else. You yeah. know, we're always measuring by comparison. And then this kind of takes it that next step, that perverse delight in where I came out on top and they were the loser. And uh, it's tough. You know, as pastors, you go, you know, sometimes, what do you do when your worst critic ends up in the hospital? Hmm. And you got to go visit him. You know, you don't walk, you, you can't, you can't walk in there. Just kind of, just kind of gloating. I, I win, yeah. you lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go yeah. well. Oh, yeah. So, oh, look what happened to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we just, this tendency to gloat, it's just, it's just arrogance, but you know, this is such a human tendency just to gloat over the misfortune. Or to turn everything people. into a zero-sum game, to imagine that we're competitive with everyone. Yeah. And that for me to win, somebody must lose. lose or for, yeah. for my race or my gender or my uh, my group, my tribe, like we're always against. Somebody else has to lose so that I can get ahead. And this way of thinking that I think is so 
uh, epidemic in our world. This, yeah, we come to just take joy in other people's loss because we imagine it as our elevation, our success. So the way Obadiah puts it is so helpful to us. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction or boast so much in the day of their trouble. That, I mean, that, boom, that's right between your that's, eyes. It's a really interesting thing for Obadiah to, to pick up on because the, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem is God's judgment. We've seen that very clearly from the other prophets. God is doing this because of unrepentance and wickedness. He's allowing them to be carried into exile as judgment, having been long patient. We've talked about this in previous episodes. So you could imagine where Edom could say, well, look, God's getting them. Look, they're getting what's due them. They're getting, that's judgment. You could almost want to glorify God for the way that he's carrying out his judgment. But he's warning them to be very, very careful. Even those who deserve God's judgment, be very careful that it doesn't produce a kind of gloating pride in you. Exactly. Yeah, that's a a very wise thing to recognize. That's a good observation, Chase, because you see that all through Scripture, that God delights in mercy more than judgment. And I kind of admit when I'm watching too much of the news and get too politically involved sometimes, I mean, you, you know, you, you just want to delight in judgment more than mercy. I want them you know? to get I mean, what's coming to them. Yeah, you know? exactly. Prove me right. Go get them, God. You know, prove me right. Yeah. So it's an, it's an attitude that needs to be crucified inside of us. And, um, God's using Obadiah to warn us of that. Yeah. You mentioned there was maybe three. Three, it's yeah. Another one you see yeah. as well, too. So, Not that we need to keep no, adding no, to this, this is, list. It's already hitting I have a little too through, close to home. I have preached through Obadiah, and this is how I preached through yeah, it. Okay. Because here's, here's, you know, he's judging an attitude, but here are the behavioral traits of that attitude. So they refused to, to get involved. They delighted when others fell, and they benefited at, at others' expenses. Uh, because he said, you should not march through the gates of the people in the day of their disaster nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor to hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So clearly Edom didn't totally stay aloof. They stood aloof. They stayed aloof when they stood or should have stepped up, you know, for their distant cousins. They stayed aloof there. But, but then when they were when Israel was truly beaten and and the people of Jerusalem were fleeing and they were vulnerable and they were powerless to defend themselves, then Edom swooped in apparently and started stealing their property, victimizing the people who were on the run. Um, they were seizing their wealth in their day of disaster. They were cutting down the fugitives. They you know, when the people were defenseless, they were picking them off because we hate these Jews anyway. And uh, so, um, you know, just that whole thing that, that we sometimes benefit at other people's expense without their permission, you know, as long as I get what I want. And you kind of, you know, it's one thing for a person to sit in front of you and admit their mistakes. It's another thing to kind of grind their nose in it, you know. And, uh, and and just benefit, just get your final say, or or um, even even uh, even benefit with in some tangible ways. If 
people is really lost. If the church near you shut down, if the, you know, we go out and then we take advantage of those situations for personal gain rather than trying to figure out what's best for people. So there's all kinds of ways you can go with that. But the idea is you benefit at other people's expense. Manipulative leadership, abusive, toxic leadership always does that. You know, it's not the people that are important. It's me. The people are there just to make me look good. I'll manipulate them. I'll power up over them. I'll intimidate them. I'll guilt them just so I get what I want them to be for me and to make me look good. That, that falls under this same category at benefiting personally at other people's expense. You're not caring about who they are. You're just benefiting from them. The final word to Edom is that they will face their own judgment, yeah. their own destruction. And the very last word is actually God's reminder that he will restore his people his to people. the land, that uh, the final verse, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion, so this is Jerusalem, and to rule Mount Esau, which is Edom, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's, that ultimately yeah. a day will come uh, in which Edom will face its own destruction. This is, I think, that final note of something. humility. Yeah. The one who is defeated will be restored, and the one who is benefiting yeah. will actually be defeated, be defeated in the end. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds yeah. a little like the first will be last and the last will be first. This idea exactly. that the way we evaluate and see things is often not the final right. word of what God is doing. It's, it's that exactly. The first will be last and the last will be first. And he said there will be another mountain. Of course, they're, they're dwelling among the peaks and that really interesting geography of ancient Edom. But uh, he says there's going to be another mountain, the mountain of Zion, where God's own son would be crucified and purchase us from sin and darkness, rise again and bring a kingdom that will never end. And um, he said there'll be, there'll be a day where that's the mountain that will prevail and uh, no, no one someday will even know who you were because you don't exist anymore. And that happened to the Edomites. Last will be first. The first will be last. Yeah, we still certainly talk about Israel. We do not talk very often of Edom. That language is probably most people couldn't point to it. Not an identifiable ethnic group anymore. Yeah. Um, One of the things that strikes me the way that these, particularly the last few weeks as we've been working through the minor prophets, how often the final word is this image of what God will do, what is to come, the salvation that's coming, some really profound images. And yet, I think for the casual reader of the Old Testament, if you just started flipping open to some of these and reading some verses, you might walk away with the sense that it's all judgment, it's all wrath, it's all anger. And certainly people have this view of the Old Testament. God's just waiting to destroy his own people, waiting to judge them, waiting to bring down wrath and plagues and destruction and exile. Uh, But I think a careful reader can't help but notice in every one of these books, no, no matter how strong that language of coming judgment is, There is always this word, particularly at the end, of hope that is to come, of restoration that is to come, of a remnant that will be persevered, of of a better future that God has intended. Um, Do you see those sort of overarching themes that are developing among the prophets? they really are. And you've been especially good, Chase, uh, in uh, always taking us to the last few verses of every one of these minor prophets, because without exception so far uh, in the ones we've looked at now— um, it ends with hope and the rule of God and restoration of that which has been destroyed. And so, so if you're getting bogged down halfway through these, uh, some of these books, if you get into chapter four and you go, oh, I don't think I can take any more of this, 
you know, if it has more than four chapters, just turn for a minute and read the last few verses and, and uh, just see the bigger picture. And I think too, when we get overwhelmed with the judgment of God, because it gets a little rep- repetitious, you're going, God, is this some of this a little overkill? Sometimes I honestly think that. And it, it can get pretty brutal, pretty violent, pretty obscenely uh, destructive. And you can just get overwhelmed. Is that the kind of God he is? But what you have to also remember is that not only will he bring a very different end to the story, but in the short term, um, he hates demonism. He hates sexual exploitation. He hates social injustice. He hates people being oppressed and taken advantage of. And all of that, idolatry, sexual uh, immorality, and injustice always went together. It's always what Israel's hearts uh, defaulted back to. And, uh, and, and, and you know what? We hate all that stuff. We hate exploitation and injustice. I mean, we're all very passionate about injustice. Uh, and then we get uncomfortable when we see God being passionately against injustice. And, and you got to be careful there. You know what? He's, for, for however passionate you are about justice and people not being oppressed, he's even more so passionate. And that's what you see in the dark parts of these, the judgment parts of these. It's a God whose heart is so pure, holy, and so loves his creation that, that he's, he just rages against everything that destroys people. Maybe what we get from Obadiah as well, too, it's certainly this book that warns us against our own human pride to sort of right. uh, to take joy at others' defeat or to benefit from it, indifference. But the God who could call Obadiah to speak that word to Edom is also a God who does not take pride at defeat, who doesn't right. gloat over destruction, mm-hmm. who doesn't isn't aloof from the destruction, that this is a God who's bringing about judgment, but he takes no pleasure or delight in it. He isn't pleased when he brings about his judgment. Exactly. Instead, he's patient and long-suffering, and at every moment, if you read this refrain over and over in these prophets, seek me, return to me, come back to me, repent— that the heartbeat of God is not joy at our destruction, but longing for us to repent and follow him again. That is his heart. Yeah. And there come a day when he would send his own son, hang him on a cross, watch him tortured to death and satisfy his justice and make a way for us to know him. That's his heart. He loved the world so much that he gave his own son. He did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John chapter 3. Yeah. Uh, I can't read Obadiah without sort of a prayer request of just being, God, spare me from this kind of pride. Uh, Just don't let me be like this. Don't let me be counted in these people. Don't let me be aloof. Don't let me uh, gloat in somebody else's failure. Don't let me advantage myself at somebody else's loss. Um, But let me be like what we're describing God himself to be, recognizing his judgment, recognizing its necessity, but being humbled by it, humbled enough to obey him, to do what's good and right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your heart. Your heart is always to come close. Your heart is to show mercy and not judgment. Your heart is for that which causes us to thrive and to fulfill your calling and destiny in our lives. We thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you will will touch our old hearts again today, especially that pride that can make us too protective 
and that that can just make us Lord gloat when we ought to have compassion at the loss other people experience. My God, forgive us if there's if there's levels of comparison and competitiveness with one another. It just gets rooted in our ego and pride. Lord, would you forgive us, O oh God? Would we have compassion on on people that fail, although they may have been our critics or they may not agree with us? Lord, always give us that heart, of humble heart of compassion. Help us not to be leaders, Lord, that just lead for what we can get out of it. How we can just use people for our own benefit or to make us look good or to fulfill our vision or our agenda, but help us to truly love people like you love them, Lord. Forgive our pride, Lord. Forgive all of these things that just make us stand at a distance and gloat and take advantage of misfortune when it comes to others. My God, we pray that you will help us to stay humble. Give us the heart of God, we pray. Give us that heart of Jesus, we pray. We thank you in Jesus' name for for, for answering that prayer. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Jim Bradford Podcast. We would uh, really appreciate it if you would take the time to leave us some feedback on the show. You can do that by leaving a rating or by typing out a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, we hope you might consider subscribing to the show. We're looking forward to a lot of the conversations to come in the weeks ahead, and it would mean a lot to us if you'd be a part of those. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to ask Pastor Jim to hear him cover, we'd appreciate it if you'd take the time to send those in. You can do that by email by going to questions at jimbradford.org. We'd love to be able to take a look at those and get them featured on the podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.